The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Two of the first CDs I remember owning. One I, I'm not so proud about. That, that'd be CNC Music Factory. I think I was trying to perfect some dance moves to try and impress some ladies or something like that. <laughs> Round about my middle school years. But the other one that I really remember having, like that I can remember actually opening it from the package, was MC Hammer. MC Hammer. You gotta, you gotta love, the, you gotta love the hammer. It was a big deal. Of course, I had. I'm sure I had a, a pair of hammer pants as well because those were like the big deal because of the video and. And his dancing. And what's amazing, and I'm sure that for, for you guys, as you guys shared those, uh, the names of those albums and those artists, you can probably think back to some of those songs and the lyrics come roaring back to you. No doubt that happens for me with, with MC Hammer that, you know, if you were throwing down some beats here at the end, I could probably nail it to about 85, 90% accuracy. No doubt there would be some places where I kind of have to mumble my way through it, you know, like we all do when you don't know the words. Be honest, it happens. But the, the hammer was, was, one of, was one of those things that I remember. And it, it comes to mind because I can go back and, I mean, I don't remember the last time I heard a song from M- MC Hammer, but I know that, that rolling around in my head someplace the lyrics are there and on those very special occasions when I get to go to karaoke, it's just amazing how many times a song will come up and I don't need to see, see the screen to be able to know what the lyrics are. There's something about that the music hits in and, and you can just, you can just do that. It's there. And I bring that up on, on a night like tonight because it, I know that there are things that are taking up the very limited bandwidth in my head that I kind of wish wouldn't. You know, like I wish that I could recall. I, I mean, here, I'm going to out myself a little bit here. I wish that I could recall verses from Scripture as easily as I can recall verses from M- MC Hammer. Okay, And I just can't do it. For a long time, I worked in the sports industry. And there are still... Um, what a lot of people might call useless sports uh, facts and, and figures that are that are in my head that frankly i 'm kind of i 'm kind of embarrassed about because I feel like it takes up it takes up space that could be used for things a little bit more constructive and you know so i 've got these things in here that that you might call i don 't know trivial certainly meaningless in, in what we 're doing and maybe just maybe there's a, there's a little bit of a morsel in there that we might call wisdom. But the rest of it is pinched out by, you know, useless song lyrics. And what, and that's going to be a little bit about what we're, we're going to talk about tonight. Actually, a lot of what we're going to talk about is this idea of wisdom. Now, if you were here last week, um, we got to hear Janie get us started in this three-week series that we're uh, doing through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Janie got us started by, by um, introducing us to this teacher who is a bit of a Debbie Downer. And speaking of Debbie Downer, I got to tell you, it, my, uh, my three-year-old son, Carson, turned, he actually turned, today is his birthday. Three, three years ago today uh, was, was obviously a big day. And, and this, is, this is actually Carson uh, on Sunday here at UPC 
was given this little piece of paper to decorate. And it actually has a verse from Ecclesiastes. For every for everything there is a season, a time for everything under heaven. And apparently for Carson, that means a little bit of volleyball and basketball and some flies and some stars because that's his interpretation of it. But Carson, Carson, this was, this was hilarious. There's this game that we play at home where it's, it's this game where you move these bugs through a garden and you're trying to get to the rose garden. Okay. And, you know, you collect aphids and what, and, and you draw cards and it tells you how many spaces you move forward where there are some cards that say move backwards. And I, I couldn't believe it the other day when Carson, you know, you know, usually he'll pick one up and, and it'll say, he'll say, move three spaces. And it's cutest when he says spaces, you know. I would get if he just got the three, but he actually throws the spaces on there. Move three spaces. Well, he started to, to connect with the fact that some of them say go back. And the other day it says, you know, go back two spaces. And he goes, wah, wah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and because I'm pretty sure I've done that before, but it took me a little bit by surprise when he was like, oh, go back two spaces, wah, wah. So... Carson, even his interpretation can connect with, with Debbie Downer. But to give you a taste of what Ecclesiastes is, is all about is that it, it starts out in the second verse. Uh, this teacher in this, whoa, in this Old Testament book just says meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And as, as I was listening to, to Janie last week, I couldn't help but, but wonder, you know, man, would this guy be right in this way if I could just take him out and, you know, give him a hug and, you know, maybe buy him a cup of coffee or a Red Bull or something, you know? Just, this guy needs a little something because whatever it is he's doing doesn't seem to be working for him too much. He sounds a bit tired or depressed. Uh, and, you know, yet ultimately, as Janie closed with uh, last week, what this teacher does is point us back to knowing and revering God as the way that we can take that which is, is meaningless and that all can be meaningless, yet everything can have meaning. Yet in this, this book of, of Debbie Downing, there is this hope and there is this thing that we can, we can look towards. And so tonight, I want to look at one thing that the teacher has already said, which is wisdom is meaningless Yet we come to a place in the text where he also says that wisdom is a good thing. Now, because most of you in this room are getting ramped up to get back into school uh, this fall, I am making an assumption that at least part of the reason you are in school is to, is to somehow acquire uh, some wisdom that you might take into the world. So we thought it might be appropriate to look at this idea tonight of, of what is this wisdom Um, that this book from a wisdom tradition would point us towards. Before we get started, let me pray for us. Lord, would you, uh, would you open our minds, our hearts, um, Lord, our very souls to receive whatever it is that you have for us tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray for the students in this room that you would be preparing them for the year, uh, that is ahead. Uh, and Lord, that we might experience and encounter you in our thoughts, uh, as we come to this text tonight. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are going to look at Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7. Uh, we'll start at the 11th verse. And what I want to uh, alert you to as we, as we read this, and we'll project it up on the board, is to notice, 
Notice some of the contradictions. Our teacher here tends to talk out of, out of both sides of his mouth. Um, yet, I think that that tension is really, really important. We'll make some comments about it uh, for sure. But notice the, notice the tension there. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to stop a little bit on the, uh, as we go through this chunk of scripture uh, just to, to make sure that we're, we're connecting with it along the way. All right. So here we go. Chapter 7, verse 11. It says this. Wisdom... Like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Now, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? That's a really interesting statement, by the way, where, where our teacher here is basically saying God doesn't always make things straight. It's kind of an accusing statement towards God. You know, he's kind of, sh- throughout this book, he's kind of shaking his, his fist at God going, man, I don't, I don't get why you do some of the things that you do. And that's one of the really subtle ways that he does it. Who, who can straighten what he has made crooked? All right, verse 14. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, this is really key to understanding this whole passage, no one can discover anything about the future. Okay, so the teacher here makes this big assertion, right, that wisdom is good. And he makes a very brief case on why wisdom is good. And, you know, by, by starting out by saying wisdom is a type of preservative. When he's saying that it's a type of preservative, what he's saying is that wisdom makes you help, helps you, gives you the capacity to make good decisions that you may live a long time, right? People who are wise, they do things like they exercise throughout their, their life. They don't eat too much red, we- red meat. They don't drink too much wine. Uh, you know, they read a lot. Okay? Great example of people who make good decisions and their lives are preserved. So the conventional wisdom goes. Then the two key passages, as I understand it, that when he's talking about wisdom, he says, first, consider what God has done. Perhaps this is the thing that you need to hear tonight, that wisdom, if we're going to call it wisdom, is first rooted in considering what God has done. Now, I know that this can be a little bit abstract, and I hope that we might be able to to drill down on this a little bit more. But it starts by considering what God has done. And then second, no one can discover anything about their future. Back then, as in the time that we live in now, there is a bit of a preoccupation with being able to know and being able to somehow predict the future. You guys see this all the time. Like you'll, you'll turn on the news and they'll have, uh, it'll be following something that has happened in global politics and then they'll have an analyst on and the first question that that analyst gets from the, the news anchor is something along the lines of, what impact do you think this will have on President Obama's ability to get re-elected in the upcoming election? You know, you hear about an injury to uh, Husky running back Chris Polk, and the first thing that everybody's talking about is, is what kind of impact do you think this is going to have on the, on the Huskies' ability to win the Pac-12 championship? Okay, all future-oriented questions, yet what we're being told here in this preoccupation with the future is that that's not wisdom. In fact, you can't do it. That's not wisdom. What that is, is guessing. Okay, that's the part that's meaningless. So, consider God and quit, quit being so preoccupied with things that you can't change. Continuing, verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. 
the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Okay, you're going to start to see this, this juxtaposition now. Do not be over-righteous. How about that for something that's in the Bible? Do not be over-righteous. Neither be over-wise. I wonder if this is because a lot of the really smart people I know are a lot like the teacher here, where they totally, they become uber-pessimists. Okay, there's, there's a place where wisdom can actually betray you. Do not be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Okay, do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Key verse right here, verse 18. It is good to grasp the one righteousness and not let go of the other. Okay, he's saying the same thing. Grasp one and the other. That he's basically looking at righteousness and wickedness and grabbing on. And then he says, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers of a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Some of you who have grown up in Sunday school can probably hear the Apostle Paul right there. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. Okay, so the teacher here I think demonstrates some of the great empathy that makes Ecclesiastes a rather interesting book to study. You see this teacher whose scholars call Kohelet has been able to enter into a multitude of different perspectives. Okay, that's what we call empathy. That ability to be able to enter into other people's world and be able to see things from their perspective, even though that same perspective may not be yours. They may not have the same background or insider knowledge that you have, but you can enter into it and see that. And this teacher has incredible empathy. But the result of this great wisdom that he has had, this, the result of being able to see things from so many different perspectives, is that it has led him into this very thick, earthly tension. The righteous and the wicked come to the same end. They both die. There's something about that that just seems unjust. And he's paying attention and trying to, trying to weigh that heavy and resolve it. So he's on to something here. There's righteousness and there's wickedness and there's everything in between. So considering his empathy, let's keep reading. Verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. What a great freeing combination of phrases, especially for those of you that worry about what other people think about you. What he's basically saying here is, you know what? Those people that you're worried about what they're saying about you are just as full of of BS as as you are. Because you know you do the same thing. So don't worry about what they say. Remember what he just said? No one's righteous. That person who's saying whatever it is, bad thing they're saying about you is, they're unrighteous too. So if they're unrighteous, why should you worry about what they have to say? What a great phrase, I think. Especially, yeah, I think about what's going on with rush or with recruitment. I'm sorry. Here in the Greek system that, you know, hey, you're being constantly adjudicated. What a freeing phrase that would be. That Don't worry about what other people are saying about you. 23, and this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? 
So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. And so this teacher is determined to be wise. And while we hear um, in we hear this despair that wisdom does not lead to mastery or perfection. He is saying there is something that can be learned. There's at least a hope that maybe I can learn how to not go wrong. But wisdom is not to be perfected or mastered. Even though we start with God, we start by considering what God has done and we don't, we don't pr- predict the future, uh, we can't know it all is ultimately what he's getting at. Right now, I'm really aware of this because I'm in this, uh, I'm finishing up this crazy degree that I'm doing called the Master of Divinity. Uh, Many of the other pastors here on staff have this MDiv. My colleague Janie, who you got to hear last week, has already completed her, her MDiv. And to me, it's a very curious, if not idiotic, title to a degree. Because divinity, the things of God, are frankly not something to be mastered. And over the past, for me, it's been over the, the, the course of the past nine years, you know, what is it, Tommy Boy, where they say, yeah, some people call those people doctors. <laughs> well, I'm nine years in and I don't yet have a master's. Okay, so some of you will probably be comforted by that, but it's taking me a long time too. So, master divinity. Where what I'm learning in this degree is that the more that I discover, the more I study and learn about God, ultimately the one thing that, that this is teaching me more than anything else is how much I don't know about God. God is not something to be mastered. Yet, we are, this teacher says, consider what God has done. So it begins with this sense of, of weak. We set sail on this as people who can learn something, but cannot learn it all. That's not the goal. But there is something to be picked up here, and I find that to be very comforting. So to summarize, what is wisdom and what isn't wisdom? Okay, wisdom is not salvation or deliverance. You, your wisdom will not save you. You can't, not, you, you can't save yourself by wisdom. But, as he says, wisdom is a good thing. Now, wisdom is not, as I've just said, a tool to somehow master God. But it is a tool, like he said in the first part of what we read, it is a tool that can help, make, help you make good decisions. Preservation, live a long life. A life that, dare we say in hope, could be meaningful. Wisdom is not there to help us dictate the future, but it is there to help us consider what God is doing in the present. Wisdom is not there to help us avoid the tension of life. Rather, wisdom helps us observe and engage that tension. And it's that that I want to spend most of our time with uh, or most of our time uh, tonight uh, talking about, okay? Because he closes in, he closes chapter seven and opens chapter eight with a very, uh, I think, kind of a hopeful question and response when he asks, "Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things?" As we've talked about, 
Wisdom brightens one's face and changes hard appearances. Wisdom matters. And it can do something. But we have to have the proper perspective on it. Now, I've come to understand Ecclesiastes as a book that college students really enjoy. And one of the ways that we, that, that I, I discovered this was last year we asked a group of student leaders to give us some feedback on, on what we were preaching about and some of the content that they would be interested to hear about at the end. And Ecclesiastes was one of the most popular responses from this group of student leaders. And here's why I think that is. I think ultimately Ecclesiastes wrestles with a lot of the same questions um, and desires that we have and that your peers have. Quite simply, we are getting this, this look at someone who is desperately trying to figure out the meaning of life. Over the course of my 11 years in working with college students and even reflecting on my own experience there, the two questions that college students ask are, who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? Ultimately, there, there is an undertone on what is going to make me happy, what will bring meaning, and that is exactly what our teacher is wrestling with as well. And he's really trying to find a concrete answer. Wouldn't you love that concrete answer where, where we, if we could just ask and get a straight up answer of just tell me what to do that's going to bring meaning and I'll do it. Just Tell me what to do that will make me happy forever, and I'll do it. That's really what our teacher is wrestling with here, and that's really a a lot of what I've observed college students to be wrestling with over the time I've been in college ministry. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. What he's looking for are some very clear, simple, if not black and white answers to life. Now, you guys, you guys can probably connect with this, right? We love to have that formula that just makes sense that we could kind of plug our lives into and everything will work out exactly the way we want it to. And in fact, so much of the culture we live in does exactly this, okay? For example, there's this mentality that says in middle school and high school, you need to study hard so that you can get good grades. Good. You need to get good grades so that you can get into a good college. And you need to get into a good college so that you might study and get a good... And you might need... You get a good job so that you can make lots of... Bank. I like that. Money. Okay. Uh, bling, if you will. And I know you will. And you need to make a lot of money so that you can buy lots of stuff. I, I, I love that everybody always says stuff right there. You know? Yeah, it's just, it's perfect. Um, stuff. And when you have lots of stuff, then you'll be... We all know it doesn't work that way, right? Nice, simple formula that in a lot of ways... Many of us in this room pursue exactly that. Our teacher's saying that's not wisdom. We just can't put it in a formula and have it work in a nice, tidy way like that. 
Now, I don't think I'm saying anything that is really shocking here. But what this wisdom that is good really is requires us to make a big change from something that really comes so natural to us. You see, what Ecclesiastes is doing right here is that it blows up any notion of the oversimplified. Where checklists, where a simple formula, like we've just said, can produce meaning. Those formulas might work for a time, but they hit their limitations here pretty quick. Let's stay with my music example for a second. That when, when I was a little boy, we had a functioning record player in our house. It was the way we listened to music. We eventually upgraded to a cassette player, which then gave way to a CD player, which, of course, now gives way to on-demand or digital downloads or, or whatever. At this point, you know, in a very short amount of time, record players are totally obsolete, you know, unless you're a, rapster, a rapper or a snobby hipster or something like that. Nobody has <laughs> record players, right? I don't, I mean, we have a tape player in our house, but we don't use it. Uh, just because there's some old, like, mixtapes that, you know, ex-girlfriends or ex-boyfriends, you know, in my wife's case, of course, give you that. You think, yeah, you know, maybe I want to dust this one off and pop it in sometime. You know, CD players, man, I don't really even listen to CDs anymore. It's all downloaded. And this has all happened in a really quick uh, time frame. What I'm getting at here is that perhaps one of the reasons that, that the formulas don't work, that the sense of black and white doesn't work, is that what God set into motion is a world that is very dynamic and ever-changing. That that was actually by design. There are very few things that are truly, truly timeless. And I think, in a lot of ways, that's God-ordained. We like that product. We like that progress. I love the fact that I can download music digitally and go for a run, and it never skips. When I was a kid, I could not go for a run with my, with my disc man, as they called it, without it skipping. Even though they advertise, oh, yeah, this one doesn't skip. It always skipped. Okay? We love that progress. That's a good thing. Wisdom goes into making an iPod. An iPod, when I first got my iPod, it was the coolest thing I owned, for sure. I was like, I, I mean, I remember opening this. I'm like, the wheel. The Wii wheel is so freaking cool. Like, this is the coolest thing I own. Okay, now it's like, you know, if you don't have an iPod, people are like, whatever. I'm like, oh, you know, Zoom is all right, but, you know. <laughs> Things have progressed really fast, and, that, and that's a good thing, but it has its limitations. That iPod does not change my son's diapers. Okay? There's a limitation to what all this progress can do. I think I got off track a little bit here. <laughs> what our teacher is trying to lead us to, and thankfully, I'm, I'm not the teacher. I want you to catch this, this image in verse, in verse 18. When he talks about, he's talking relative to wisdom and righteousness. And he said, he's been observing what will make life work forever and ever. Amen. And he, he grabs on, he, he's been looking at this righteousness. 
what can I do that will make my life work? And he grabs onto that. And he sees that it has limitations. And then even in the text that we read tonight, he goes, so I turned to understand the scheme of things and I looked to try to understand wickedness and folly. Boom. He grabs onto that. Black, white. Righteousness, wickedness. He says, hold on to both. There is something to be learned in both. And what the teacher does is lead us right into the middle. It's not about finding the answer in the black. It's not about finding the answer in the white because you all experience this. How much of your life is really black and white? No. These two things go and it's gray. We live in a world of gray. And it doesn't mean that the black isn't true. It doesn't mean that the white isn't true. It means that it all gets mixed up together. And you guys know what I'm talking about here. This is the ground level of things. This is dealing with your roommate that doesn't do the dishes the way you want them to. This is dealing with with a parent that has hurt or wronged you. This is dealing with the surprises of, of perhaps being surprised by a friend that is addicted or, or somebody who comes out and tells you that they're gay and you don't know what to make of that. This is the world that we live in. It isn't nice and tidy. And what our teacher is trying to show us is saying, when I've tried to just go towards the way of righteous, I turned my back on everything that was real. And then as I studied why that happens in wickedness, I turned my back on what is real. And so what our teacher is doing is saying, if there is to be true wisdom, it's going to lead us in that place of real life. If wisdom is going to matter, it has to matter in the gray. And it has to matter in influencing others' lives. Now, we live in a culture and in a world where there is this this movement towards this individual moralism where the way that you deal with tension is by saying, well, whatever works for you, works for you. I'm not going to get caught up in that. And that is not what our teacher is asserting. It's actually exactly the opposite. The teacher is saying, no, it's not about you just sequestering yourself and and sequestering others by saying, oh, that works for them, but it doesn't work for me. Wisdom is discovering ways to enter into how you might love and support that roommate that pisses you off. Wisdom is being able to enter that gray where you grab the reality of God's love that has been revealed to it and go charging into the gray with it. You go charging into the, the middle with it. The places of life that you really live. That's when we begin to find meaning. When we're able to, to say, I believe that this love of God is real. And I'm going to take what I know about that. And wisdom is discovering how I might be able to smuggle that love into absolutely everything I do. It's not black. It's not white. And going to either extreme and living there and existing there and turning your back on everything else, that is what our teacher says is folly. 
Instead, we grab this love and we go charging into the gray with it. 